0: Welcome back to Season 11, Episode 21 of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, where we bring you the extraordinary lectures from the Digital Orthopedics Conference San Francisco, the experience in 2023. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, and I'm also at the University of California, San Francisco, and I will be your host for this podcast series. In our next episode, we will actually hear from Fabrizio Billy, PhD, from UCLA, and a co-host of DocSF. He'll actually bring us the incredibly popular experience that we had last year, called the DocSF Science Segment, and he's pitting docs and scientists to review the latest evidence for change with our standing panelists. Join me in welcoming Dr. Billy and his panel to the Dr. Seth stage.
1: Hello, everybody. Uh, Thank you. Very excited to be here. I don't know if you realize, but now I have the hardest job, which is to keep you awake after lunch and uh, doing so, talking and discussing some papers, which is, to me, it looks like heroics. So... Very exciting stuff until this moment we have heard yesterday and today. The advancement of technology these days is so fast that sometimes we feel like we are living in one of those dystopian worlds coming out of Gibson novel, the Neuromancer, or Stevenson's No Crash, or The Matrix, or Minority Report. And for some of us, that's exciting. We see some of those ideas come into reality. For others, it's frightening. And for a part of us, uh, you know, it's also something that we don't know how to interpret. So skepticism. So and how we make sense of all these technologies that are coming to us to an ever faster pace. And the answer to that is with evidence and looking at the evidence. And this is what DocSF is about. So DocSF was created to present you the latest papers published in uh, digital orthopedics, reviewing them, screening hundreds, as Stefano said, hundreds of paper and reviewing them for you and presenting to you in hopefully a fast paced, very exciting way, a new way to discuss and present it. We think about DocSF Science as a journal club on steroids, and that's what it is. So we will have uh, four segments, two today and two tomorrow. You see here, we screen actually 316 papers that were reviewed by our reviewers. In reality, this year alone, we went through 1,216 abstracts. Huge amount of work. We employ 10 senior reviewers and the three top papers for each segment were selected and will be presented and discussed with you. So the first part, which is today, is going to be large language models and AI chatbots. And then we will have another session on AI and big data. Tomorrow, sensor and XR. And then RS and cobots. And that's how the prep will be presented. First part today, large language model and AI chatbots. And I want to invite on the podium my partners in crimes, the reviewers, that will discuss with us this paper. Gavin is a professor at UC Davis. He went to med school in India. He did his ortho residency in UK. Yeah. Finally, you are it to the US. Yes. <laughs> Have a seat. Then Tom. Tom is local. He's at UCSF. He's the director of the Informatic Core for the UCSF REACH Center for Chronic Low Back Pain. He's an expert in biomedical informatics and computational biologics, digital health technologies, and AI. And then Alan Young. So Alan is a USC graduate. Hey, nobody's perfect, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So he's an orthosurgeon with diverse clinical and corporate and entrepreneurial accomplishments. He works at Kaiser Permanente. Deloitte, Accenture, and Slalom. He is currently served as an expert uh, consultant on strategy and uh, technology for McKinsey. Thank you so much. Okay. So, okay, Gavin, this is the first paper we review, the importance of machine learning in autonomous actions for surgical decision-making. So, All right. what is this paper about?
2: Thank you for allowing me to choose this paper. So, I chose this paper because it is a primer for people that don't know much about AI and machine learning. And it's actually an explainer paper and a review paper. The first half of the paper is about AI, and it goes into short paragraphs explaining different aspects about AI, machine learning, the different types of networks. And at the end of each paragraph, they explain how it is how it correlates with surgery. In the second half of the paper, it's a review paper on papers that look into using AI for surgical decision-making. So it starts off really broad with the 30,000 foot picture of AI and machine learning. And then it comes down to a very narrow focus on surgery, but then an even more narrow focus on autonomous actions in surgery. So there's no methodology in it. In some ways, there isn't much of orthopedics in it, but I think it is generalized and broad enough that it would apply to any surgeon. And I really hope that this was published in a more mainstream journal. I had never heard of the artificial intelligence and surgery journal. They only have a few issues. It's an open source. And a quick word about the authors. The authors are all from Germany. They started a surgical data science initiative in 2025. They wrote a couple of white papers on it. And it's a sort of a movement to get AI into surgery. So I think this is a very well-written paper that gives noobs like me on, in AI a much Claire, I've done online courses on uh, machine learning, but I think this gave me a very succinct view very clearly, very quickly.
3: Tom, what's your thought? Well, first off, thanks for having me here today. I thought this paper was really great. Like you said, it's sort of a thousand foot bird's eye view, whatever you want to call it. You know, and what we're outlining here on the screen is a bunch of different ways in which AI can help in the surgical setting. But, you know, this can really interact with everyday life in the surgical setting in many, many ways. So they can be things that are helping you so it can reduce clinician burden. These can be things that automate certain processes, so it frees you up to do other things as well. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about ChatGPT, like everyone does in in the next uh, few slides. But, you know, these are things that can help you, say, summarize a patient record, can help you formulate emails. So there's really a, a lot of different ways in which AI can be
4: used. A lot of them, we might not even know what they are yet. Alan? Yeah. Thank you all for having me again. It's a pleasure and an honor to be next to these esteemed speakers. I agree with everything that was said. It's a great primer. It reminds me of when I first started learning about data science and AI many years ago. And it touches upon things like supervised learning, unsupervised learning, reinforcement learning, and shines some light on some of the challenges. One of them is the amount of data coming through all of our digital applications, intraoperative devices, cameras, medical devices that have sensors, and all creating data. And the challenge with AI is you have to have For some of these learning models, labeled data, which is very painstaking to do and requires an expert like an orthopedic surgeon to do some of that. Some of the other models allow for unlabeled data. So unsupervised learning allows you to get insights or spot patterns with unlabeled data. So that's becoming kind of more and more popular. So definitely this paper helps shine a light on the different methodologies to use. And one of the other things it points to is two kind of early applications of this information. One of them was looking around predictive or clinical decision making. So providing information or insights to clinicians at the point of care to possibly make different clinical decisions for patient safety. And then the second one was really around OR efficiencies, looking at using machine learning to calculate things such as turnaround time or optimizing surgical duration estimations, things that help, as we heard earlier today about the functioning and operating and efficient usage of facilities like ambulatory surgery centers.
1: Thank you. Question that I have is, as normal with creating these models, we need to consider bias in the way they are built. So the paper doesn't address that. And how important do you think is bias when we are creating these models? Tom, you wanna?
3: Very. (laughs) Now, uh, bias is something that affects all AI models, right? So if you think something going into making the model, you are likely to affect how the model behaves and what it's ultimately going to tell you, right? And if some of your initial assumptions are false, then that gets baked
4: into the cake too. Alan? I agree bias is inherent in a lot of the news we hear about AI models and to touches upon two things. One of it is explainability, the ability to look at machine learning algorithm and understand it and interpret it. Or is it a black box where no one knows exactly how the convoluted neural network ran and what the hidden layers were and what the output layers are? All those things can cause people to have lack of faith in the models itself. And the second thing you talked about is bias and kind of equity in AI. I think that's one of the things where inherently people who build models will kind of infuse their own biases into it. And as you look at for interpretive models of how to deploy these different solutions, bias can also creep in in thinking about what setting or what application would be most useful for these technologies. I think that's a big challenge because coming from the orthopedic surgery perspective, we may have a certain preference of using AI in a certain way and then you go to the primary care setting or you go to the hospital administrators, they will have a different perspective on that. Gavin, 10 seconds.
2: Yeah, I think we always look at biases as a negative thing, but we should also note that when we democratize information and we have large amounts of data, there is also a possibility that human biases could be equilibrated, and it may actually try and eliminate biases if we do it properly. Thank you. Let's move to the other one.
3: Okay, Tom. Great. So this is a paper called The Diagnostic and Triage Accuracy of the GPT-3 Artificial Intelligence Model, right? So obviously we've talked about this a lot today. As you're aware, this is rapidly developing. So in 2020 was when the GPT-3 model was released and you guys didn't know about that, right? And then in November 2022, it became very popular because they had ChatGPT, which is very accessible. And these things are only going to get more and more powerful as we go along. So what we're looking at here is we're looking at diagnostic and triage accuracy of ChatGPT, right? So what they did is this research group from Harvard since before ChatGPT has been curating a set of vignettes that have a diagnosis associated with them, right? So if you didn't have ChatGPT here, what you'd be looking at is a layperson in blue trying to read these vignettes and make a diagnosis, right? So they have access to the internet, they can go on WebMD, et cetera. And in green, we have a professional clinician. So these are Harvard primary care doctors who give their professional opinion on the vignettes. And this is the performance metrics for comparing the two, right? So you can see that the middle bar here is ChatGPT. So we did some prompting with ChatGPT to tell it that you're trying to make some diagnoses and here's the vignettes, and then we set it go. We let it go and say, uh, you know, what was the diagnosis? So some of these orange bars are a little bit bigger than the green bars, but what you should be looking at are the error bars, right? The results of this is that ChatGPT is not as good as a expert clinician. And it's about as good as a regular person with the internet. So keep in mind, this is only ChatGPT 3. Obviously, ChatGPT 4 is already available. And there's even some other types of models that might be even better at this. So, one of the cool things we have at UCSF is we have all the clinical notes from all the University of California medical school campuses. And they have been de-identified, and we want to use these to train a model, right? So if you have something like that or access to, say, clinician's notes or maybe some medical-specific information that you're feeding the large language model, then I think it can get better than this, obviously. But whether or not it's going to be able to outperform
4: a clinician, it's hard to tell. Helen? Yeah, it's interesting. Just earlier you asked me about bias, and I think it's interesting that The primary care physicians in this study were all Harvard Medical School graduates or professors, and so that obviously creates inherent bias. You set your bar maybe, I'd say, slightly higher than the average clinician. Second of all, looking at the differences between the two, the GBT-3 was looking at diagnostic capabilities and triage capabilities. And when it came to diagnosing, it was actually performed close to the clinicians at almost 90%. But when it came to triage, it actually performed closer to the average adult using the internet, closer to 70%. So that kind of brings up two questions. I think you touched upon it. The fact that this language model was not trained on medical-specific literature. It was just pulled off an entire database of 175 billion words or or sites. And so to that point, the accuracy could be improved with kind of medical-specific training. But it also goes to show there's some danger in using kind of these tools without a human in the loop For example, we had a major health system work with us in the past around creating an AI-driven chatbot to triage. because They thought certain patients didn't need to come to see the orthopedic spine specialist, for example, or a neurosurgeon. They could go to see their primary care doctor or someone in between. And the idea of using a chatbot to triage them kind of created this idea that, well, it has to be accurate. And in this case, you can see that the accuracy is no better than the average person going online and Googling things and their symptoms and deciding, I have enough reason to go see an orthopedic surgeon versus going to see my podiatrist or going to see my PCP. So this kind of raises the question of how accurate do we need these models to be? And can we omit the human or the clinician from this decision-making process?
2: Thank you. Kevin. Yeah, I might be confused here, but I think the paper talked about GPT-3, that predates chat GPT. And so this is an older model. And like you said, ChatGPT GPT-4 is hopefully more powerful than GPT-3 that sort of stopped at 2021. So I think it is likely that these models, if they'd had to repeat this study again with chat GPT-4, the orange bars might be closer to the green bars. The other thing I also noted in the paper was that these vignettes were written at a grade six level English, which means that it would be easier for the chatbot to recognize the the words, which would not really translate to real life, because you'd be, hopefully most adults would be writing it at the level of, at least high school level. So there could be that difference. But the other thing they also note in the paper is about biases, like we talked about earlier. I think this was a well-written paper. It is already, within a year, outdated, unfortunately. Okay, let's move on.
4: Alan. Yes, this is an interesting one. So before I joined McKinsey, I was the chief medical officer for a number of early stage AI startups, one of which was building a chatbot to do what this paper is describing, the ability to really automate some of the communications that typically take place between a provider, their staff, and patients, either before or after surgery. In this case, this is following patients that had undergone a hip arthroscopy procedure for femoral acetabular impingement and monitored kind of the conversation that they had, whether or not the patient sent messages into the system or the chatbot was able to externally push out messages such as education, reminders, medication, or pain guidance, et cetera, and monitored the success of this. And it followed them for six weeks and it measured it based on kind of user patient satisfaction. As we all know, I think my colleague mentioned it earlier, patient satisfaction sometimes doesn't hinge on how well the surgery went, or how nice the surgeon was, it could have been a result of them waiting too long, or they didn't get a communication, or they got a secondary bill from the facility and they didn't expect that. And that could kind of bias their overall perception of quality or their quality of the care. And so looking at this chatbot, it really tried to automate a lot of the messages that normally would be previously traditional Patients calling in, right? Patients saying, I have hip pain. I don't know what to do next. Can I move? Can I go to therapy? When should I come see you again? Can you refill my prescription? The chatbot automated a lot of those messages and tried to triage anything that was concerning or safety or otherwise needed to be escalated to a higher level. And what struck me was that if you look at the number of inbound questions, 128, 40 of them were automatically addressed. So sounds like a big number, but that's less than one-third. So if you're deploying an AI-based tool, and this tool can only handle maybe a third of the questions that patients ask, then you have to ask yourself, then when does the nurse or doctor need to step in? And you'll see that there's different intervention periods where it needs to be escalated, there's a patient safety concern, and others. So this shows that, to me, that there's a lot of improvement and opportunity to improve on these tools. Although the patient satisfaction was higher, I also think it's because they're able to now communicate much more frequently and at a higher velocity to their clinicians, whereas before they were limited to saying, you'd have to call my office or I'll talk to you at our next visit. So it enabled patients to kind of own their care a little bit, but it created this extra data dump of concerns and questions to the clinical offices that were handled, in this case, by the chatbot, because normally there's no way a normal clinical office would handle this extra volume. And I think the numbers of interactions was in the thousands. Tom? Yeah, I thought that this was a really useful
3: tool. Obviously, it's still in its infancy. Hopefully, at best, this will be able to reduce clinician burden and help patients better understand either their treatment or their diagnosis or anything they need. Obviously, we have to go back to biases. Was this trained on and is it going to say the right thing? There's a technical term that people have decided on called hallucinating, which really just means it's making things up. So how do you know whether or not this is saying the correct thing? You don't always. And maybe as we move forward in the future, we're going to get more controls on these types of software to be able to say the right things all the time.
2: Yeah. This was one of my favorite papers. I did not know that the company was Memora that presented this morning. <laughs> and I like this paper because there was a lot of thought processes that went behind the methodology because they got three surgeons to sit down and write down all the 73 questions or whatever that were most likely to be asked by the patient. They then used Amazon MTurk to then test those questions to see whether they were repeatable, whether they made any sense. And once they did all that, then they set it out, you know, they released it to actual patients. They did have a very small number of patients, but they did do a power analysis and it was appropriate. What I liked about the fact was that there was only three quote-unquote unsafe decisions. The chatbot actually got the confusion. It knew that it was self-aware, of how many times it became confused and it deferred to the care team. Of the three unsafe, there was only one that was potentially unsafe. And the funny one was where the patient said, I got pain in my calf and then didn't say anything anymore and the chatbot didn't reply back. It should have sent a message back to the patient saying, you need to talk to the care team. So I think there is still room for improvement. But I think the way they planned it, they prepared it, the methodology was pretty good. And I think the outcomes clearly showed that from a clinician's point of view, this would save my clinic staff so much of time and effort. Every morning my RN comes into the clinic, she has about thirty or forty calls on a list of things to do. And that just takes away so much time from the actual stuff that she has to do, the education and clearing patients and stuff like that. So something like this is something definitely I would want in my practice.
1: Okay, thank you very much. We've done for this segment. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. you.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast and DocSF Science. If you find the talks as incredibly informative and topical as we do, please share this podcast with your friends and leave us a nice review on your podcast player of choice. You'd mean a lot to us if you did.